Hey, what's going on guys? Welcome back to the Honest Youth Pastor YouTube channel, the channel that helps believers use biblical discernment in all aspects of life. And today we're going to do that in literally my favorite way, which is watching and reviewing the sermon. Now, we do this every single week and it's enjoyable all the time because I learn something, hopefully you learn something. But this one is going to be exceptionally great because it's always good to bring to you a good sermon, <laughs> like just cards on the table already. It's just nice to bring you a good one. So we're going to be watching that. I'll explain a little bit more here in a minute. But if you're new and you don't even know what a sermon review is, you have no clue what you're watching. Well, each week we go through and look at a variety of different sermons from a variety of different pastors. And we ask three basic questions. One, do they read the text? Two, do they exegete the text using context and culture to bring out application? And three, do they preach the gospel of Christ? So that's what we ask every single week. Sometimes we barely hit the bar. Sometimes we're way under and occasionally we go way above. So today we are going to be watching a sermon uh, from Jordan Green from Pursuit Church. Now, I posted a reel of Jordan just a few days ago. Uh, where he basically was um, repenting for being so growth-driven and not so much reverence-driven. And that reel really intrigued me. And I thought, I've got to watch this whole sermon. And so I've listened through this whole thing once, once before, and I've got to tell you, there were a number of times, and I think you're going to see him here as we go through the sermon, that I was in the car just like, yeah, like super pumped. So without further ado, let's just go ahead and jump over to the review screen. Uh, if you want to watch this whole sermon without my commentary, like if you would just rather do that now, you can. Link will be in the description below. There's a lot of other links down there as well if you want to check those out. Um, some of those are to help you uh, review sermons yourself. Some of them are to support the channel. It's just kind of, you know, just check it out. Just check it out. Um, so that being said, let's go ahead um, and hop into a sermon now. Let me make sure I got the audio going, guys. I'm always, uh, the audio thing is always an issue. Okay, let's go ahead and jump in. Jordan Green uh, called Resurrecting Reverence. That is the name of this sermon. Uh, it's about it's an hour long, so you're going to have to bear with me, but I think it's way worth it. So let's go ahead and hop in. This morning's message is a, uh, a culmination of, I would say, about eight or nine weeks of the Lord just uh, working deep within our hearts and in our minds. Um, without getting into all the details of everything, there, the Lord just, in the only way that the Lord does, he just introduced a thought to our hearts and then confirmed it over and over and over and over again. And it kind of set me and us uh, on a journey and the heart of that is around the idea of reverence. And um, reverence is not something that we talk about all that much. Reverence for God, reverence for his presence is not something that, that is discussed often. And that's because in our current culture, reverence is simply something that is almost non-existent. Reverence is not something that, you know, when I was younger, um, you know, there was a, a huge push of respect and reverence and honor to certain people and, you know, your elders and your parents and this and that. And that's something that has just completely and utterly faded away. Uh, a lot of it, and I don't want to blame every horrible thing on politicians, but most of the time it is their fault. Um, but just the way we see the leaders, you know, of our country just destroy each other. 
and there's just no respect and honor just doesn't exist in our culture. It just doesn't. It's gone. It's completely dissipated. And, and I think even significantly, even in the church, reverence is something that is just completely dissipated. And, and so as, as the Lord just started to put this on our hearts, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, if I'm just honest with you, I didn't even know where to start. Even in, even in studying, this, the, the, the Lord just started to draw us to reverence and I just started to dig deep in the word of God. And, you know, what is reverence? You know, what does that really mean in a practical way to my life and to our lives before God? What does it mean to have reverence for God? And what does it mean to be irreverent towards God? And am I reverent before God? Do I have a reverence for the presence of God? Does our church have a reverence for the presence of God? These were all things that, that, that I, I had to really just stand back and bow down before the Lord and just begin to seek him uh, from a place where I didn't even really know how to start. And so I just started to study the word of God and just pray that the spirit would lead and guide me. And I realized very, very quickly that reverence is a significantly important thing, not just in scripture, but to God. Okay, so really quick, obviously this is, we always like to talk about kind of the sermon build. So he's introing in and sort of explaining to them um, hey, this is why we're looking at reverence. Now, to be clear, if you were to go to this sermon, it says uh, the presence part three. So this is obviously like a series that they're doing, uh, but you wouldn't know it, right? I mean, this 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 sermon by itself already is basically a standalone sermon. You're going to notice that it's basically a standalone sermon the entire time. Um, but he's entering into this part three. I haven't watched the other parts to be just transparent with you, but um, he's entering into it and explaining, hey, we're going to look at reverence. And being incredibly transparent in the fact that he's like, I didn't even know where to start. Now, some of you might be like, what do you mean you didn't know where to start? You're a pastor. Some of you guys from more of a higher church sort of liturgical thing, um, uh, you're going to be like, well, like there's a whole like structure set up about the reverence of God and, uh, you know, the, the principles of by how we should worship him and what that looks like. And I think this is a really good sort of intro and he's going to, I don't want to ruin it, but as you watch this, you're going to see sort of why he doesn't reference that from before, right? So he doesn't know about, um, you know, liturgical worship or um, how some more high church, uh, you know, systems sort of operate in regards to, um, you know, specific ways in which to worship and like just the order of worship. And so I think this is for, for you guys that come from that sort of that background and tradition, this may seem odd. But really, this is a, sort of a glimpse into sort of a more of a seeker-sensitive uh, movement, uh, a pastor that's come within the seeker-sensitive movement looking for, oh, th you know, a thing that you've had forever. <laughs> and so it's interesting to see this sermon, Bill, because he's sort of entering into this, telling his congregation, like, we, we've just really felt drawn to what does it mean to be reverent and what does it look like not to be reverent and um, being really honest with them saying, I didn't even know what to do, didn't know where to start, but I really wanted to dig in because that was something I felt was important. And I think two things here, and we'll get back into it because it is an hour-long sermon. I don't want to take too much of your time. But one thing is they felt the Holy Spirit sort of drop that on them. Like, you, you need to seek this out, what it means to be reverent. And not only did they feel that, they obeyed it. 
right? They, they said, okay, well, we're going to do that. We don't know where to start, but we're going to do that. And then what you're going to see throughout this, the rest of the sermon is really the outpouring or the outworking rather, I guess, of that obedience to seek out what it means to understand what it means to be reverent. So let's, let's hop back in. And I just wanted to, to start this off, this, this conversation off just with a couple scriptures so that we could understand the weight of reverence and what it really is. And the main, the main message this morning is gonna be out of Malachi, but I just wanna hit this really fast. This is Isaiah 11. This is a prophecy about Jesus and specifically about the spirit of God that would rest upon Jesus during his ministry. This is Isaiah 11, one through three. It says, then a shoot will spring up from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now that's Jesus. It's a prophecy about Jesus. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, which is reverence for God. And in verse three, it says, and he, Jesus, will delight in the fear of the Lord. He'll delight in the reverence of God. So I just wanna, I wanna make sure that we understand what just happened here. Reverence just got elevated above every other thing that was mentioned. So it says that Jesus, the root of David, Jesus, when he comes, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and fear of the Lord, or reverence of the Lord. And out of all those things mentioned, it says that Jesus will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the reverence of God. That just means as much as we value wisdom and understanding, as much as we value counsel and strength, as much as we value knowledge, the thing that Jesus chose to delight in was reverence for his father. Now, that, that's a pretty epic statement. That's a pretty epic moment. That's something that, that we should pay deep attention to, that of all of those things that the spirit of the living God is and brings into our lives, the thing that Jesus chose to delight in was reverence in the fear of God. Now, I always say that anytime they reference a text, we need to go to it and read it. Um, obviously, he had that up on screen, which is nice because... There's a lot of people that don't do that anymore. Um, not a lot, but there are people that don't put the verses on the screen anymore. And so if you're not necessarily in the church, you don't see it. So that's nice that they did that. I, did, I just say that to say this. I, without g going further into you know study of that passage myself, his takeaway seems on right on. I don't see how what he's saying is, I, I think his takeaway is right on in regards to kind of working through the verse and saying, hey, these are the things that are mentioned. And this thing is sort of elevated as he will delight in the fear of the Lord after the fear of the Lord was already mentioned. So all that to say, I, I would have no question at all about that being correct. I'd still take a note of it to double check it, but it seems right on. Then in the New Testament, in Hebrews 5, 7, when it's discussing Jesus's earthly life, it says this. It says, during the days of Jesus's earthly life, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. 
So I want again, I want to make sure that we don't just read past that and go on about our day. What that means is, is that Jesus, while he was in the flesh, Jesus, while he was on earth, walking the earth, while the spirit of God rested upon him and he ministered to this world and he presented to us the heart of the gospel and he died for our sins, while he was on this earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him, that's the Father. And it says that the reason that the Father heard him was his reverence. That means that out of all of the reasons to hear Jesus cry out to God, the God wanted us to know he heard and listened to his son because of reverence that he had for him. He's his only begotten son, but God wanted you to know it was his reverence that made him heard. He performed great miracles and had significant power, but it, God wanted you to know that it was his reverence not his ability to do these great powerful things, not the, the spirit activity in him, not, not the wisdom, not the knowledge, not anything. It was his reverence for the Father that God heard him. So reverence is significant to Jesus. It is significant to the Father. And anything that is significant to Jesus and is significant to the Father should be significant to us. Can I get an amen? amen. And so that's reverence. Again, just, I mean, just to break in, because I want to be fair and consistent against, uh, against all of these sermon reviews that we do. Um, that seems right on as well. Even if you keep reading contextually, verse 8, although he was uh, a son, he learned obedience through, uh, through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation uh, to all those who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So again, it's, it's going into his obedience, um, his reverence, all of that seems to track well. And I, I, I for two, three weeks now, I, I've, I've toiled, literally wept, toiled, not slept over how to teach us reverence and define reverence because I felt like I'm only gonna get one shot at it and I wanted it to be the most practically powerful, genuine, biblical-centered definition of reverence. And this is what uh, the Lord just, after studying the scriptures and after looking at reverence in the Bible in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord in the New Testament, the reverence of God, after just looking at every time God mentions reverence, discusses reverence and talks about reverence, what I, I, I put together all of it into this one statement and it, it, it's incomplete, it's, it's not perfect, but I think that it gives us a great head start in the right direction. And this is how I want to define reverence. Reverence is a deep awareness of God. It's a deep awareness of God with a deep respect for his presence that results in a loving devotion for him, his will, and his ways. Reverence is a deep awareness of God with a deep respect for his presence that results in a loving devotion for him, his will, and his ways. I, I want to I share with you just a, a, an, a comparison, an analogy, a teaching point to help drive this home a little bit, but I almost don't want to do this because it's going to fall so short of the seriousness and the power of what we're actually talking about, but I feel like it's just something that might get us an inch closer to a practical understanding. All right, so one thing real quick. Uh, I think that definition is good. I think it tracks with everything 
um, that he said up to this point and that he's going to say. Um, also, what I find interesting, he's about to tell a story, right? So we've talked about stories before. Do they add or they, do they take away from the sermon? Um, he's aware before he tells this story that it's very likely to um, fall short of actually explaining the thing he's trying to explain. But it's the best story he has to sort of do that in an applicable way um, that may be understandable to his congregation. So, so I think that's important, right? So this idea, um, because we've, we've had, we've reviewed stories before from a variety of different pastors and sermons in which it's just like this long drawn out thing. It's got comedical elements. It's got, it's got serious elements. Sometimes it's used as a bridge between two points. Sometimes it's just there. It really takes away from the sermon. Um, even though they think it's some like deep point. And so what Jordan's doing here as he's entering into, he's like, like, look, like, I want to give you an example. I know it's not going to be a great example, but it's going to give you sort of a taste of what I'm talking about. And I think that preface really helps moderate the congregation's expectations because Jordan is talking about this reverence for God that is enormous, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's unfathomable, really. So what do we have that's human to human comparison to even to that? And he understands that. And so he prefaces and he sort of mitigates their expectations here of the story that's happening so that now... Not only has he sort of mitigated our expectations, so we're not going to like pour all in and say, oh, this is a one-for-one -one comparison, but he's also sort of hooked us in. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> what's this story then? And so now I think unintentionally, but it works in his favor, that we're now interested more so than we were two seconds ago in what he's about to say. When I was in college, I had uh, the privilege of working for the president of the university. His name was Dr. Khan. He was probably the greatest man I have ever met in real life. He was just a man that commanded respect. He was deeply wise. He was incredibly successful. Uh, he took uh, the university that I attended from nothing in the 50s and in one generation in the top 100 schools in the country. He was just, he's just a brilliant man. And, and I, when I walked, he's the one, you ask all of my teachers growing up, you ask any adult that was an authority over my life, they thought they were, that, you ask any of them, nobody could shut me up. I didn't speak in his presence. He was just, he just command, he's like six, five. He woke up every day and ran five miles. He ate perfect. He, he, he could just solve problems before you even knew there was a problem. He just was brilliant. He was just a brilliant man. And I got, for a year, I got to sit and work with him. And, and in a year, I maybe said 19 words. I just listened. And I wanna give you the, the amount, one of, the, one of my just, I just wanna brag for a minute on the immense responsibilities I was entrusted with. One of the things, the primary things I was entrusted with was to get his breakfast in the morning from the cafeteria, okay? So I'm just trying to be humble. I know that that's, it is what it is. I had great opportunities. And so I had to go, but he, he, he ate the same breakfast every single morning like a robot, all right? He had, he had a bagel, he had a pineapple, and he had several pieces of fruit, and he wanted them cut in a certain way so that he could just come in and get them because he didn't have time because he just was running the universe and he just had to come in and, and get it. And so they taught me how to cut it. And as God is my witness, I would go and get the tray and I would walk back, please don't drop it, please don't drop it, please don't drop it. And I would get there and I would get the knife and I would cut it. And multiple times I just ate a piece or threw it away if I didn't think it was cut good enough. And as dumb as that sounds, it's, it was real because that's just who he was 
to me and who he was to, to that college and who he was just in our lives. He was just a great man. And I, there was just this innate thing in me. I wanted to please him. I, I, I wanted, I wanted, I did not want to disappoint him. I wanted things to be as, as, as he wanted them to be because he was brilliant and whatever. If he wanted his pineapple cut in a triangle with a half in so he could put it right in his, then that's what I wanted to do. Like I, whatever he wanted, that was what I wanted to do. And, and, he, that's about the only one in my life that I could really point to in this way and, and, and say that. And so I, I hope that there's, there's somebody in your life that maybe, you know, the closest you can maybe get, even if you don't like them, there's still a, a boss in your life or there's still somebody in your life, an authority figure in your life that there is an amount, even if it's forced reverence, even if it's an unhealthy fear, there's still, when, you, when you're around someone where they have an authority over your life and you, you treat them differently, and you, you operate differently, that, that's, that's reverence. And when it comes to God, reverence is, is the beginning truly and the end of, of the way that we treat God. And, and I, I, wanna, I really want you to understand if reverence is a deep awareness of God with a deep respect for his presence that results in a loving devotion for him, his will, and his ways, irreverence is not being aware of God his presence and spiritual activity in your life resulting in a dishonoring lifestyle. All right, and so I, I want us to look at, there's, a, there's a, a book in the Bible, it's the last... Okay, so what he's doing here, talking about sermon building, right? So he's talked about why they need to talk about the reverence of God. He's talked about him diving into exploring the reverence of God and what that looks like and what that means so that he can teach on it. He gives an example of reverence in his life after defining what reverence for God looks like. Then he says, well, if that's the definition of reverence for God, and you guys have a sort of a picture of what reverence looks like from person to person, what would be irreverence, right? And so he names it, and he's building what, what we don't know. Right. I mean, I know because I've, I've listened to the whole thing. What we don't know at this point, though, if we're just listening to this, is he's actually building a bridge here from the introduction, which has been 13 minutes or so. And then he's building from that introduction into his main text in Malachi that he's going to he's telling us about right now. And what he's doing is creating dots for us to connect, because what you're going to see if you listen close enough is that this definition that he's using for irreverence actually ties intricate, int intricately <laughs> into what he's going to bring out of Malachi uh, as demonstrated by, by God's people in that book. And so he's sort of building us piece by piece here. Hey, saying like, we have to look at reverence. We have to understand reverence. This is the definition that I can find after I look at all of the different references of reverence for God in the scripture. We all have an understanding of some type of structure, even if it's unhealthy, of some sort of reverence towards somebody. And so let's look now at the text and see what that looks like for the people of God and their reverence and how in a, a certain time and place um, they, they had to work through this a bit. And so now he's going to take us to the book of Malachi. So th this is where you would go. He's going to tell us this is his main text. Uh, and then that way you can get there. And we're going to walk through this. He's going to uh, sort of unpack it for us, walking us through demonstrating the definition and also what it looks like to be irreverent using the scripture to do that. So let's, let's hop in. Last book of the Old Testament, and it's the book of Malachi. It's a short book. It's only a few chapters long. And what makes Malachi, he was a prophet, and what makes Malachi in his ministry 
in the book of Malachi different from many other Old Testament prophetic books or, or books where, where God brought a prophet onto the scene to minister, sometimes to rebuke and to lead the people. The difference in Malachi is Malachi comes at it. God, God speaks through Malachi to address things in Israel, to address things in his, the lives of his people from the perspective of reverence. The whole book is from the perspective of reverence. Yeah, there are some sins that he deals with. There are, there's some sins that he deals with, but even the sins that he deals with, he deals with them from the perspective of reverence, not even necessarily from the perspective of the law. In each thing that he does, in each thing that, that he does, the, the, he addresses the way at which each action is irreverent towards God. And so I, I want you to, I want us, as we kind of get into this, I want us to understand that. And I, I, before we do, I just, I want you to see the few things. There's five big things that Malachi addresses. We're not gonna talk about all of these things in detail this morning, but I really want you to understand the weight of what Malachi is addressing. And I, the, the very first thing that he hits is their worship. And I'm not gonna spend hardly any time on this. I'm gonna hit this because we're actually gonna come back to this. And that's gonna be the main thing that we look at this morning. So here's one thing just from a, from a preaching sermon perspective. When you're preaching, like, so if you're a pastor or a pastor in training watching this, like if, you, if, you, if you've been a pastor for a long time, you probably already know this. If you're a pastor in training or looking to be a pastor, how to build sermons, this, this, what he's doing here is very helpful. Because what you want to do as a good communicator, just in general, but a good preacher and pastor, is to help your people see where you're going right? And so this is why, I mean, up to this point, he's been sort of topical in regards to sort of jumping for, from one text to maybe another text, sort of defining reverence. But what he's going to do now is sort of take us through the book of Malachi, uh, not verse by verse, but kind of a point by point. But he's careful to tell us, like, there's a lot here. We're not going to get to all of it. This first point, we're going to kind of skim over quickly because I am going to come back to it at the end. And so you're letting the congregation sort of in on where we're going. They have a, they're not going to be surprised. There's not like some, you know, you know, map that they're unaware of that only you have, like you're letting them know and you're bringing them along on what you've prepared. And it's helpful because it's now they're going to be asking later, okay, where's this worship thing? Um, as a good communicator, you're going to kind of let them know you're bringing it back in. But the point is that you're, you're sort of helping them you're making this easy to listen to. You're helping them along in this process. And that is incredibly important, especially when you're writing your sermons, um, when you're delivering them for sure, is making it not only engaging for the audience, but making it easily engaging for the audience um, so that they they can easily follow you. So if they are taking notes, it's not like, where is he at? I have no clue. He's all over the place. Like you've thought this out, you've planned it out, you have a roadmap, you're following it. Um, for not only for you, your benefit so you can stay on point, but for the congregation's benefit so they actually know what you're saying and know where you're going and aren't confused. I think we've all experienced that. There's been pastors we've listened to before that are really easy to listen to. You you, you understand where they're going, what they're saying, what their points are. And then there's other people that you're like, you were over here, now you're over here, and I, I, I'm totally lost. I don't even know what your point is anymore. And so he's doing a great job of sort of leading us along in kind of where he's going and what he's saying. But the first thing that he looks up is their worship. It says their worship was irreverent and heartless. 
In Malachi 1 and 2, it says that, that they, they were doing the bare minimum. They weren't honoring God in any real way. They had no respect for God. They had no reverence for God. And they, they proved that in their corporate worship. They proved that in their temple worship by bringing uh, dead and sick animals to give to God. They were doing the bare minimum. They were, whatever the minimum was, they would drop right below that line and they would do that. And so Malachi addresses, he actually starts with this. He starts with the heart of worship. He starts with reverence in worship in reverence in the gathering, reverence in the temple. The second thing that he hits, he, he, goes, he goes with irreverence in their heart. So God actually calls them out and he says that, they, that he literally says, I can hear you and I see your heart. And he says, and you say in your heart of hearts that this is a nuisance is the word that he uses. To worship me is a nuisance. To go through these motions, it's, an, it's a nuisance to you and it's annoyance to you. It's a hindrance to you to follow me and to worship me and to be my people and, and to allow me to be your God. It's, an, it's a nuisance to you. It's an annoyance to you. It's a hindrance to the way that you actually wanna live your life. God calls them out for this. The first one, they're similar, but the first one it was irreverence in their worship. Their worship was irreverent and hard. Now, one thing I would say, right? So I just praised him for, hey, he's helping us along and guide us. The only thing that I would add to this is that if you're gonna, anytime you do like large chunks, if you're giving a specific example, like for example, God says they're, that they they feel like they're, this worship is a nuisance for them. Uh, give us like verses, right? Because if we're just opening it up in your Bible or on your phone or on your iPad or whatever, um, chapters one and two are, they're not huge, but like if you're just skimming them, it's gonna be hard to find what he's saying. It's gonna be hard to skim and find what he's saying while also paying attention to him. And so that's something where if you're gonna say, hey, they say in verse whatever that this is, or he says to them in verse whatever that this is a nuisance to you. Like just so you have an anchor in the text, right? So that they can go back to that later and say, oh, it's here that it, they could obviously easily read that themselves later and go find it themselves. It's gonna be easier for them though to know where you're pulling that from. And that would just, I'm not saying it wrecks a sermon. I'm just saying it really helps the congregation to know where you're at when you're pulling specific phrases out that you say are happening in the text if you haven't given us that text. And that would be the only thing that I'd say, like, like this whole sermon build is really good. His points, I think, are flowing well. Um, but we need to be able to give the congregation verses and text to anchor them and tie them to the points that are being made. Heartless, it was bare minimum. Then he goes straight deep into the individual level and he says, I see your heart. I see who you are and the way that you think about me and the way that you think about worship and the way that you don't value me and that to follow me and to, to worship me and to allow me to be the God of your life, it is actually an annoyance to you. I'm an, I've become a nuisance to you and it, it hinders the way that you really wanna live your life. He says, all of this is coming from irreverence towards God. The third thing uh, he says is there, he addresses a very specific sexual immorality. 
that God had told his, his children. He said, don't marry, marry within the Israelites. Don't go and sleep with these other women from these other religions. He said, because a part of this, they actually addressed this multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Uh, over and over and over again, they were drawn sexually to these other women, but to, in order to have relationships with them, in order to sleep with them, it, they always made them bow down to their gods in order to be in a sexual relationship with them. And so I, I just, I think I can speak for all men uh, that if you aren't close to God and you wanna sleep with somebody and she says, bow down to Baal and you're like, all I gotta do is bow down to Baal and then we can go sleep together, done. And they put their knee down and they went. This was something that was repeating over and over and over again. But the heart of what Malachi says, the heart that they had towards God was how dare you tell me who I can sleep with and when I can sleep with them. That was their reverence towards God. God laid out the structure of sexuality. He laid out the structure of what was right and what was good and what was wise and what was best. And though the context has changed greatly, the irreverence towards God about sexuality is a million times worse today than it was back then. And before we start judging the world, it's just as bad in the church as it is in the world. Okay, so two things. One, again, with the connecting it to the scripture would have been incredibly helpful in these points, right? Just just to tie it to scripture. And so they have a point of reference. Secondly, though, what he just did there, I think is really helpful. He's going to elaborate here. Um, but his point being is like, yeah, the church can complain about the world all they want, but like we have our own problems and how dare we complain about the sinners that don't know Christ sinning when we have people in our church that claim to know Christ that are still doing the same thing as the world. And so he's you're going to see this pattern here that I think is refreshing to see. Um, in it's just refreshing to hear in preaching. Honestly, you don't hear it a lot. Um, where what he's really doing is drawing, um, drawing back this idea of hey, the world's so terrible, and saying yeah, it's terrible, but like let's look at us first. And I think that's super helpful. Different message for a different day. Four. And I just want to give a warning here. I understand that, that some of the things that we're going to talk about today, there's a, there's a great opportunity for you to be offended. There's a great opportunity for you to feel bad. There's a great opportunity for you to allow guilt to come in and shame to come in. And I'm going to just beg you, fight that feeling. If the Holy Spirit brings conviction, then let conviction come. It'll be the best thing that ever happens to your life. But don't let yourself, don't let the enemy twist up your heart, your soul, and your mind. Don't let yourself get triggered and go into a deep hole of guilt and shame and, and run from this. We all have mistakes. We all have sins in our past. We have all done the wrong thing more times than we've done the right thing. God still loves us. I just want to point out, this is a part when I heard this, like I, I've listened to enough um, what I would consider pretty conservative pastors to at that moment, that could have went one or the other way. <laughs> that could have went, you're a bunch of snowflakes and you just don't love Jesus like you should. Read your Bible more. But Jason, or not Jason, Jordan rather, takes it in a different direction. He's like, look, you're, there's going to be a pushback against this when you hear it. Like, I expect that. But then he urges them. He doesn't be like, ah, oh, you're just not real Christians. What he says is like, I urge you to like lean into that though, because conviction is good for you. And following the Holy Spirit's conviction and leading is a better way to go than being offended and triggered by it and then 
And he doesn't say running away. He says going into a deep, dark depression. So what he's acknowledging is that like whenever there is conviction brought, obviously people push back a bit, right? Like the woman at the wells, I think a really good example of that. Like there's this pushback or this deflection. Um, and he knows that he knows that's going to happen. And instead of saying, you know, call him a you know bunch of <laughs> snowflakes or whatever, what he, and I've heard pastors do that before, which is why I'm laughing. It's just sad. What he does rather is pivot and say, like, lean into it. But when you lean into it, like, don't be hopeless. Like, can, don't, let the, don't let that crush you. Just know that there's something that needs to change here. Like, it's, it's a good thing that the Holy Spirit is convicting you. So I think the whole handling of that is really good. Acknowledging that what we're going to say is probably going to offend you a little bit. Encouraging you to lean into that conviction because it's good for you. And instead of saying, you know, you're not a real Christian or you're just running because you don't, you know, you're not whatever. He says, like, lean into it, but don't let it, like, put you in a hole. Let it remind you of how good God is. And so that whole build, I think, is one, it's really well thought out. It's a heart of a pastor. And again, it flows in with what he's doing. He's like, look, we're trying to teach you about reverence for God. And whenever you, you have reverence for God, you're going to understand who you are in light of him. And it's going to be really easy to be crushed by that, but don't be. Lean into the conviction, lean into Jesus. It's just, I thought that was handled really well. And I'll prove that to you here in just a minute. But the fourth thing that he, he hits, and he hits it directly, he hits them for the way the men are treating their wives. He says, I, I, I want you to understand, God says, I'm standing as a witness to the wife of your youth and you are mistreating her. You are not being kind to her. You are not lifting her up. You are tearing her down. You're being unfaithful to her in your heart. You're being unfaithful to her physically and sexually, and you're divorcing her. And God says, I want you to understand, this is one of the most profound statements God ever made. First, he says, I hate divorce. I want you to remember that. God says, I hate divorce. He says, and the reason that I hate divorce, he says, because when two, the man and the woman become one soul and one flesh, he says, what binds them together, he says, is a portion of my own spirit. He says, so when you stand and you make a covenant, you're not just making a covenant with one man and one woman, you're making a covenant with one man, one woman, God and his spirit that binds you together. So when you rip it apart, it's God. The reason why this is so irreverent and the reason why God brings this up, he says, because who do you think you are to destroy my daughter? Or who do you think you are to destroy my son and leave my son when it's my spirit that bounds you together? And I was the one that stood as a witness to the covenant and the vows that you made, that you made, that it wasn't just the preacher there that day and it wasn't just Aunt Thelma and it wasn't just all the people that showed up. He said, I was there that day. My spirit is what bound you together. It was me that put you together. It was me that joined you together. And what I joined together, no man can ever separate. And I want you to understand the weight of the way God actually teaches about divorce. It doesn't say no man shouldn't ever separate. It says no man can separate it. That means that no matter whether you go on and marrying somebody else or not, your soul is attached to that person you stood before the God of the universe and vowed to die with. Now, if there is one part in this sermon that I have an issue with, it's probably that right there. Not because he outright talks about like soul ties, which is the thing that 
apparently people like talk about a lot. Um, but he hints at it a bit and that's a bit problematic. We're not going to get into this video. You can look up people that have talked about it. Um, if, if we're going to talk about divorce at all and the biblical view of divorce, I would encourage you to block out three hours of your life, even if you have to like break it up into 15 minute segments and watch Mike Winger's um, three hour video on divorce. It's amazing. You may, you may disagree with him on parts, but he goes through every single aspect of it as seen in the scriptures and comes away with, I think, a very biblical view on what uh, divorce is and how it should be handled and what it looks like. Like he covers every base you could possibly want to cover. I, I highly encourage you to go watch that video. I'm with Jordan on a majority of what he says here. I just like when he says your souls are tied together. This is also where I think that, um, again, going to the verse and sh like walking through that verse and showing us that verse would be way more beneficial. He will do that here toward the end. Um, right now he's more in summary mode, but the problem is it would have been just as easy to read those verses and then to work through them than to summarize them and not tell us where they are and then sort of make some points. Again, I don't think his points are bad. I think, as I said at the beginning, I think this is a, a pretty solid sermon for the most part. Um, but what would have made it, what would have made it more solid is being able for us to connect these points to actual verses. So we had some sort of reference so that we could double check him because that's where the danger becomes, right? Is that if he says something that sounds really good, but he's not connecting it to a particular verse, then that can be problematic and full disclosure as well. I haven't had the time since I listened to this to go through and just read through Malachi there could be things here that I'm missing, but I'm trying to approach this from a position of me and you were just walking into his church and sitting down. What's our first impression? So what I would do, because he's not connecting these to verses, is I would definitely go back and say, okay, where are these and are his points valid? And I know that that's heavy and I know that that's hard. And I get it. But God says, it, it, it is, he literally says, you cover them with violence. It's the worst thing you could do to leave the wife of your youth or to leave the husband of you. It's the worst thing you could do to mistreat them, to be unfaithful to them. It's the worst thing you could do to disrespect them and not love them. It's the worst thing that you could ever do in your life is to destroy the woman or the man that God gave you. There's a weight to that because I know that our culture doesn't and I know that even our current Christian culture doesn't, but marriage is God's. And the church flips out when another group wants to take marriage, but why on earth would God be upset for them taking marriage when we don't respect marriage as it is? One of the things I appreciate about Jordan is the fact that he keeps drawing it back to the church. It'd be very easy to say the culture is messed up, look at them doing bad things, but he keeps drawing it back and saying, okay, let's check us first. I mean, the church is infamous for destroying the world. They are the world. They don't believe in God. The Bible says, save your judgment for yourself. Let them do them their thing. If they don't believe in God and they're not followers of Christ, they have no reason or right or anything to be able to follow this, but you do. So how dare you get so up in arms about what another group in this country is doing when we ourselves should humble ourselves before God and repent for the distastefulness and the disrespect that we show God in our own marriages.
I know that's hard to clap. I know, I get it. But the unkindness that we show each other, the disrespect that we show each other, we tear each other down with our words. Beyond that, not just in marriage, he also addresses the fact that we break faith with each other, that we choose to slander each other, hold bitterness in our heart towards one another, tear each other down. The way that we just destroy each other verbally and in our hearts, that's why Jesus said it's like murder. He says, but this is, this is the, the heart of this is how God, how, it's, it's, his, it's his son, it's his daughter. You know how you get when someone is mean to your child. I've seen the nicest, most gentle people turn into serial killers in a second. Yet we, even in the church, and Paul warns us many different ways, but one of the ways that's so, so direct, he says, if you're not careful, you're gonna devour each other until it's gone and it's over. You will destroy your friendships. You will destroy your church. You will destroy your circles. Not every See, again, verse references, we did really good at the beginning of doing that, but we've he's gotten lax as we've went through. And it's not that you shouldn't like trust that he's telling you exactly what Paul says and where he says it. But giving that reference, giving that anchor just bolsters the reliability of the person that you are listening to, because now we can double check you. Now we can go back and verify what you're saying is actually there. And I think that's, that, that gives a lot of weight to what somebody says when they do that. Everybody else, you, He goes on in the fifth thing, and I'm just, just so we don't, I don't even wanna get everybody to get lost in this. They rob God financially. We have a lot to deal with. I don't wanna touch your God and mess with money this morning. But he says outright, he says, you're robbing me. And they say, how are we robbing you? I've asked you to give of your money, your resources, so that my house is always overfilled, so that there can be worship, there can be ministry, there can be a gathering, that, there can, there, that the worship of God never stops, that the ministry never stops. I've asked you to give this. In fact, God says, I've told you that some of that money's mine because I gave everything to you. And before everybody flips out, I, the, sometimes the only time people study Bibles when it comes to money. They say, we're not under the law. Let me explain, let me explain the Bible to you. In the Old Testament, 10% of the money was God's. In the New Testament, 100% of the money is God's. All right, so don't go there with me because I actually study the Bible. So I'm not, I'm not gonna go there long, okay? I'm not gonna go there long, but this is the last thing that he grips their soul with. He says, the reason, and it's more important why they're not, you don't value the worship of God. You don't value the ministry of Christ. You don't value the expansion of the church. You don't value the advancement of the kingdom. You value boats and houses and cars and foods and stakes and pleasures of life. So you give, 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 take, 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 take to yourself and leave the church hungry. There's more, if, 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 the, if the church in America truly gave what they were supposed to give or gave out of a generous heart, the church alone in America could end a significant portion of world hunger, could end a significant portion of homelessness, could end a significant portion of everything. Yeah, that's and another thing accurate. all of our conservative yeah. Christians get so upset about is the government's trying to take over stuff and the government's trying to fix stuff. The government is having to try to do stuff because the first calling and responsibility was on the house of God and the church. We failed miserably at that. Now the government's trying to do it and we hate them for it. Just sit in that for a second. <laughs> I mean, that's true. That's true. 
a lot of your local organizations and clubs that like do uh, stuff for uh, like food banks or uh, eyeglass. I know like uh, there's people around, like there's clubs, they're called different things in different places, but they like give free glasses and eye treatment to people that can't afford it. Those aren't Christian organizations. Um, there's a lot of organizations that exist because we as believers haven't done, uh, we haven't been generous as we should have been. So he's right. He's right there. I'm not a socialist. I think socialist is the worst way to run an economy. I'm not getting political. It's just called math. I know basic math and it's horrible. All right, but you cannot disobey God and then be upset when the government is using your disobedience and your failure to gain power and control. If we were obedient, that door would not be open for them to use. All right, now that's heavy, I know. I'm gonna get off money, I'm gonna get off money. Let's just go back five minutes. We'll go back five minutes, we're fine. Everybody was like, divorce thing's the worst thing ever. Money, I'm out of here. <laughs> it's funny, the American church trusts the church with their kids long before they trust them with their money. It says something right there. The heart of this is reverence. And I wanna go and I wanna start where God started. God started with worship. God started with, with the house of God. God started with the gathering, the corporate worship. And the reason I believe without a doubt that he starts here with reverence is because if you don't have reverence for God in the gathering, you will never have reverence for God as an individual throughout the course of your life. If, if you can't, in, in New Testament terms, if you don't have reverence for God, on the one hour or two hours where it is supposed to be all about God, and you can't even make that one hour all about God, you will never, your life will never be all about God. That, that, that's why in the Old Testament, every time God brings a word, every time God brings discipline, every, every time God brings rebuke, he starts first with the house of God, he goes then to the priests and then to the people. Now, one of the things that thing that he just went as far as the gathering, the priest, the people, we're going to see that sort of outlined in Malachi in the verses he actually gets in. Um, the one thing that I would just like clarify, and again, I don't, I don't have this a huge issue with it, but I think one of the things that, um, that we could have clarified there is that it's not just, you know, your one hour at church. It's how you interact with the body, how you interact with the community of believers around you. Are you interested in being a part of it? Are you on time? I mean, he, he'll, he'll mention parts of these all the way through. Um, and that's why I don't think it's a huge deal, but I think it's this idea, like it's this one hour a week. Uh, and it's, and I, I think Jordan would agree. Just listen to the rest of this sermon that he's not saying it's just this one hour, but he's trying to draw them into, if you can't focus now, are you ever going to focus? Because whatever, whatever's going on in here is going to filter out to the course of the rest of our lives. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament, we are the light of the world. If we have the light, darkness cannot win. If darkness is winning, it's because we are not operating as we should be operating. So he starts here, and this is how he starts. And in the first, the first verse you're gonna see up here is gonna be verse six. But the first five verses, God does something that I think is so profound and it's so good and it's so holy and it's so our God. He spends the first five verses before he brings a single rebuke, before he opens up this conversation at all, he spends the first five verses to establish one thing, how much he loves them. That's what the first five verses of Malachi are. He says, Jacob, I have loved you. 
I've loved you. I've brought you from nothing. And I have loved you. I've loved you deeply. And I have hope for you. And I'll never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. I love you. He says, Jacob, I've loved Esau. I've hated. And he says, now look at your life. Look at all that I've done for you. In New Testament terms, it would be, look, you exist. I created you because I loved you and I wanted you to be. And even in your sin, in your darkest moments, in your darkest hours, in the depths of your evilness in your heart, that was when I sent my son Jesus to die for your sins. And then I adopted you and I made you my son and I made you my daughter and I filled you with my Holy Spirit. And Jesus will guide you and will keep you cleansed, will cover you with righteousness so that when you stand on the day of judgment, you will be seen as holy, righteous, and innocent and you will spend eternity with me. God says in, in New Testament speak, if God was having this conversation with us, those are the things that he would have said. And he would have said, this is how much I love you. And I want you to know that. As we begin this conversation, I deeply love you. And I'm coming at this not from anger because he's not angry. If anything, he's hurt. And he says, but I, want to, I need to talk about these things. And so then he begins in verse six, Malachi 1, 6, with a simple question. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Where is your reverence of me? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Now you'll notice a pattern here. All throughout Malachi, God says something and then they say, we don't know what you're talking about. And then God explains it to them. So one of the things that I realized in my own life, I think that you'll realize in your own life is there are things we're being irreverent towards God about. We have no reverence towards God. And there are things that, will, that you don't realize how bad it really is and how difficult it really is and how irreverent it really is. So this is the part where we need to, as a family, we need to be humble before the Lord and know that if the Lord is bringing rebuke or conviction to our lives, it's because he wants to set us free and he wants to bless us in the end. And so he, he asked them, he says, if, 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 if a father receives honor and a master or a boss, you know, or a governor or a politician receives, receives fear and reverence and respect, he says, if I'm your father, where's my honor? And if I'm your master, if I'm your king, if I'm, if I'm your leader, where's my respect? Where's my reverence? Where's my fear? And then they say, hey, how are we, what are we doing wrong here? And then he explains, Malachi 1, 7 through 9, he says, but you ask how have we despised your name by presenting defiled food on my altar? But you ask how have we defiled you by saying that the table of the Lord is contemptible? When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present the lame and sick ones, is it not wrong? Trying, uh, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Ask the Lord of hosts, but ask now for God's favor. Will he be gracious? Since this has come from your hands, will he show you favor? Ask the Lord of hosts. So God actually takes an incredibly uh, logical stance here. He says, listen, and in this day and age, this is not the financial conversation. That's a later conversation. This is the worship. This is, this is bringing offerings and, and, and gifts to the Lord and sacrifices. The heart of what was going on was they come and brought sacrifices because their sins needed to be cleansed and covered and forgiven so that they could worship the Lord. And so God in his mercy, instead of wiping people out, he brought this 
opportunity of, of this in so that they could worship the Lord. And they were asked to bring unblemished animals. They were asked to bring the first and the best. They were asked to bring the, the good of their stock, the best of their stock in order to offer this to God. But instead they were bringing the blind and lame animals, the ones that couldn't walk, the ones that were sick, the ones that were dying or close to death. They were doing the bare minimum. They had, their heart was not in it. Their heart was not there. In just a few minutes, God just point blank says, I've become a nuisance to you. It's, because, it's an annoyance to you, like in our terms, like, and it's an annoyance to go to church before you can hit the lake. It's an annoyance to be a part of, of the service. It's an annoyance to get in there and be here on time. It's an annoyance. It's an annoyance. We bring the bare minimum to God at the gathering. This is what they're doing. We're, we're, we're bringing the bare minimum. We're here, we're in the room, but our heart's not there. We're here, we're in the room, we're singing the words, but it's not worship. It's not a focus on God. We're here, we're in the room, but we're, we're aware that we're in the room, but we're not actually acting like Jesus is in the room with us. So one of the things I really want to point out here is how he sort of seamlessly gave us context, what's going on, what it says to the text, and then application. And so it, was, it wasn't heavy-handed. It was just like, hey, here's where they're at. This is what they're doing. This is what the text says, and isn't this us? Right. And so it wasn't, um, it, it was sort of just uh, sort of slides us into that to where if you're sitting there, there is a question for you, right? Like it was, was I, am I here just counting down the minutes till I can leave? Am I here singing the words, but I'm not really worshiping because I, my mind is somewhere else. And then the last part, like, are you aware that you're in the presence of, of the Lord and are you acting as such? And so the way he sort of unfolds this again with this whole sermon building, right? So he's, he's brought us up to this point and says like, all right, here's everything that's covered. We're going to back it all the way up. Like we said, we were before to worship. Now let's work through that and brings us to Malachi chapter one and starts bringing us through those verses saying like, like this is what they were doing. And it is identical to what we do. And it's really bringing home the point, kind of closing the chasm there between, yeah, Old Testament text, yada, 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 our life here now, and saying, yeah, these are the same. And he's doing so under the tone of saying, we wanted to explore reverence and what it meant and to see if we were being reverent. And when we looked at it, we're not. And so he's gently, again, as a pastor, from a what seems like to be a pastor's heart, gently bringing his people into the realization that there may be some things that need addressed. We're bringing the bare minimum. And the priests allowed them to do this. And as you go through and you study this, this is something that we see in Isaiah and Jeremiah over and over and over again. Every time they get to this place to where, where in, when they gather together, where God is not truly glorified, where God is not truly honored, where God is not truly revered, where true heart worship is not happening, God has one response. Anger? No. He has one response. And he says it in Malachi 1.10 here. Oh, that none of you, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle useless fires on my altar. I take no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will accept no offering from your hands. 
And then he makes a statement. I want you to hear this. He says, for my name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say the table of the Lord is defiled. As for its fruit, its fruit is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a nuisance. And you turn up your nose at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring offerings that are stolen, lame, and sick. Should I accept these from your hands? Ask the Lord. He says, would you take these to your governor and expect favor? Let me put it in New Testament talk. Let me put it in modern language. Would you go and treat your boss or the authority in your life or your governor? Would you go and treat human leaders in your life the way that you treat God on Sunday mornings? Would you be late to a meeting with your boss every day and expect to keep your job? Would you stay on the phone uh, uh, looking while, while you have an opportunity to worship Jesus? Would you just be sipping coffee, staring off into space while your boss is trying to give a presentation? God's asking a very logical question. Would you treat your human leaders the way that you're treating me? The answer is absolutely not because you have more reverence and respect for human leaders than you do the God who created you and saved you. <laughs> so again, the ability, and this is... When, there's a few things here we need to talk about. I know we're already an hour in, man. We've got 20 minutes left just in this sermon, and that's if I don't interrupt ever again, which we know that's not happening, but I'm just telling you this is solid. So he's building this out. He's brought us to the text, and he continually keeps closing that chasm between this is what they were doing in Malachi, and this is what we're doing now, and, and just gluing those two things together and saying like, hey, this is what they were doing. And we can go, oh no, look at them. But you do the same thing. You have, if you really sit back and think about it, he says, you have more reverence for your boss than you do the house of the Lord. And he's really, again, so gently bringing in this point that like, if you were at your work at a meeting, you're not going to be on your phone the whole time, but I can look out in the audience and see you're not totally connected and not really here and not really in what we're doing. And so he's very gently saying, you have more reverence than you have more reverence for your, your work than you do the house of God. And so, um, again, gently closing that gap over and over again, bringing the truth of what's happening in Malachi into the now. Like that, that's the heart of what God's getting at. That's the heart of what God's getting. And he says, well, all those other things that we talked about, why did all those other things exist in their life? Because they had no reverence for God in worship. They had no reverence for God in the gathering. They had no reverence for God in the temple. They had no reverence for God in their one-on-one -on -one relationship. It was a nuisance to them. And when you have no reverence for God here, you will have reverence for God nowhere. And so these are some hard conversations to have. But then, then, God, and I'm not going to read it because I don't, and this is a heavy message and I don't want to make it even heavier, but he spends a few verses where God says, this is what I'm going to do as a good father to sons and daughters. He loves us. So he treats us like children. He loves us. So at times he disciplines us. He says, I'm going to bring a curse on your land. I'm going to make things very difficult for you. He says, so that you'll know that what I'm saying is true because in the end, he wants to bless them. In the end, he wants to prosper them. In the end, he wants to lift them up. In the end, he wants to make them the greatest nation in the world. He says, but I'm not gonna make you the greatest nation in the world if you dishonor my name. He said, because I will be made great. I will be seen as great because he is great. This is the thing I need you to understand. God is holy above all things. He's holy, holy, holy. He's righteous, he's just, he's wise. 
He's greater than you could ever imagine. He is so great and he knows his own worth. He will not be treated less than who he really is. That's why his heart is, don't worship me at all if you aren't gonna worship me according to my worth and my value. He said, close the doors, close the doors because you would never treat human leaders the way that you treat me. I'm not talking about just us. I'm talking about the American church in general and some of it just us. And then he reminds them of something in, in Malachi 2, verse four through five, as he comes up there. He reminds them about the covenant of worship, the initial covenant that he made with the, the Levitical line, with the priests and with the temple. He reminds them of this. The first few verses, he says, I'm gonna bring a curse on the land so that you know what I'm telling you is true. He reiterates this in, in verse four. He says, then you will know that I have sent you this commandment so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace which I gave to him. It called for reverence and he revered me and he stood in awe of my name. So God said, I want you to understand the covenant that I made with Levi, which stands for the Levitical line, all the priests. This actual covenant that he made, he made with Phinehas, the grandson of Aaron, the first high priest. He said, I want you to know what my covenant of worship is. I want you to know what my, the foundation of worship is. I give you life and peace and you give me reverence. I act like a good father to you and you honor me like I am a good father. Okay, so these are good points, but I'm not gonna let you off the hook. <laughs> For uh, 17 minutes before the service ends, we started playing music. So if, if you're new to sermon reviews, I call it the Pavlov's dog effect, is that we kind of know that the sermon's coming into its closing section when we have like piano or guitar in the back. And we've started it at the 40 minute mark. I provide for you and I guide you and I lead you and you worship me. I become your king and I fight for you. And then you treat me like a king. And God says, so because I love you so deeply, I can't let you keep having life in peace if you have no reverence for me. And he says, so for a little while, I'm gonna take the peace so that you will know that this covenant is real and so that you, it will continue. The thing that I want you to see in this is that though we don't take the worship of God seriously, God takes the worship of God seriously. Though we don't treat him with any reverence, though we don't understand how great he truly is and we don't treat him in that way, God will be treated great or he would rather you shut the doors and not worship at all. This is a heaviness. There's a heavy thought to this. And I wanna, I wanna let everybody off the hook real fast because I can feel the weight in the room, especially for anybody that showed up late this morning. I'm sorry. I saw somebody in the parking lot and I waved and I meant it and I love you and life happens. So this is, I, I do want to bring this up, right? So he's been very heavy on the reverence means you show up on time. Reverence means that you pay attention. Reverence means this, that. And he knows that there's been people that showed up late. And again, this, 
I think this demonstrates a pastor's heart. This demonstrates really knowing who you're talking to and, and bringing this in love to people and not as a heavy handed beat you over the head with the Bible thing. He knows that people showed up late and he knows those people are, are going to fulfill some type of way. Either they're going to feel personally attacked and think, man, we're never coming back here before this is all legalistic. Or they're going to be like, man, I'm not reverent enough. And they're going to go into that, that, that depression that he talked about to begin with. So what he does is he just acknowledges that. He's like, like, I saw you. I know things happen. You didn't know we were going to talk about this this morning. I'm not using you as an example. I'm just saying it's something to be considered. And so I think that's helpful. I think, again, it shows an awareness awareness of the audience that you're talking to. And so um, I think as pastors, that's again, that's that's not sticking to a strict manuscript that's reading the room a bit and having sort of this dialogue, even though it's one way, it's, it's the acknowledgement of you probably feel this way. I'm just letting you know, like, I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying, let's think about what we're doing. So I think that was nice too. All right. But I, I, I want you to understand the weight of this. Malachi is written first to the priests. The entire book is written to the priests, second to the people. Why do we have such, and, and we do, and I'm just being honest with you, we have a great irreverence towards God. And over the last weeks, I have prayed and prayed and prayed, and the Lord just opened up my heart. And he really just showed me how we got to this point. I don't mean our church. I mean, just his church in this country. Over the last 30 or 40 years. I want you to listen to this. I think this is really, really important. This is something um, that if you haven't really followed um, like church development and like church um, techniques and like systems and things like that. You may not know anything about what he's about to say, but he's right on. And he, I think he's right on, on the history because he sort of grew up in it. Uh, the secret sensitive movement is what I'm talking about. He'll mention that. Um, and he unpacks this in a very understandable, easy way, right? There's a lot of details he could get into. There's a lot of names he could name. There's a lot of people he could put on blast, but he doesn't. And he just says like, this is the history of how we got to where we are. And this is the problem with that in a very gentle way, but in a very exposing way. And so like if, if I know if you're still with us, we're already an hour and 10 minutes into the sermon review. I get it. It's been a minute. But like listen to this because I think this part here is very uh, helpful in understanding how the American church has gotten to where it is and the legitimate issues um, that, that, we, uh, that we have. So just this is good. This is great years the leadership of the church the priests the levites they have completely overall for the majority completely misled god's people we the priests have misled god's people we've done this in various ways but one of the most dominant ways, and I think that it probably started off very genuine, was 30, 40 years ago, we realized there was this thing happening where there was a lot of older traditional churches that could not let go of yesteryear. And they would, they would, rather, they would rather people not come to their church than dare move the organ. 
and change anything. And it's funny, but you, everybody that grew up in church right here knows exactly, that's why you're sitting in this building right now. Right? And somebody along the way said, we, we, these, we, we've got to create a church where people want to come to. Because nobody's wanting to go to these churches because there's so much tradition, so much religion, God wasn't even involved in most of it. And so they started to, to build churches. And I remember one, of, I'm not gonna call any names, but I remember one of the, the very first ones that kind of began to change the culture. And they created a term, they deemed this term seeker sensitive. Raise your hand, you ever heard of that? Seeker sensitive. It's this term in the church world where we've gotta build a church and we gotta build the system and we gotta orchestrate things so that people wanna come be in the room. And initially, I'm, I'm, the heart was in a genuine place. We want people to worship God. We want people to come to Christ. We want people in the room. So there, there was a genuine start. But this, this began to change the culture because what you had was you had all these religious, traditional churches that would, would rather not anybody come to their church, including Jesus. Then you had over here, you had all these churches that were like doing everything they could, having rock concerts and and uh, giving away ice cream and all the, you know, just crazy stuff. I did a bunch of research in some of the first few weeks. One was a rock concert, one was ice cream. This is back in the 70s and 80s when you didn't need that much, I guess. So I, just for clarity, somebody was like, they're giving away ice cream, we're gonna go there Sunday. I, it's good, I'll eat some ice cream. They started building churches for people and what started to happen is these churches started to grow because they're giving away ice cream and, and playing Bon Jovi. That was the first song. And so all the other churches that were struggling, they wanted to do that. So they started to build their churches like that. And over the course of five years and 10 years and 20 years and 30 years, now the vast majority of growing churches, they're all built for one purpose and one purpose only to get people in the room. And the system is built for the people to be in the room. And, 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 and pastors, they would begin to stop, they stopped teaching things that would offend people and drive people away. In fact, I'll read you this. I don't wanna spend long here, but uh, in Malachi, he accuses the priest. He says, a, a true priest is supposed to have instruction in his mouth. Nothing false should be found on his lips. Uh, your, the goal is to use the word of God and turn people away from iniquity. And the people should seek instruction from his mouth. But he says, but you have departed from the way and your instruction has caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. You are irreverent, basically. So I in turn have made you despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the matters of the law. Meaning they stopped teaching certain things so that the people wouldn't get upset. So there's a lot of churches and it would be easy to call out all kinds of names, but people stop talking about sin a lot. People stop talking about certain sins a lot. People stop talking about, they, they started picking and choosing what they wanted to teach. And they found the things that were popular that people love to hear about. And the, and the entire churches became about that thing, faith, you know, whatever. They were, they were picking certain parts of the scripture to teach about and then they were ignoring other parts. While they were building the system for people, and so we conditioned the priests, the preachers, the leaders of the church, we conditioned an entire generation for you to think, and I'm sorry that we did this, for you to think that church is about you. You're, I can't explain to you how accurate of a retelling of the secret sensitive movement this is. Rewind it, listen again. This 100% on.
that it's about what you want, that it's about you coming here and getting something. And if you're not coming and getting what you want, you'll go down the street. We turn Christianity into consumerism. And we did it, not you, we did it. The priests did it, the preachers did it. And we did it, just to be honest with you, the vast majority of us, we did it because instead of finding our worth in Christ, we found our worth in how many people are sitting in our churches. So we traded our souls and our callings for you to think we're great and for us to look good so that we can go to big conferences and tell people how awesome we are and how we grew our church. Amen. Like that's the reality of the American Christianity. So just let this sink in. Some of you are not familiar with this. Some of you are all all too familiar with this. So what he's brought, and again, this fits in with what he's talking about. We've went from what is reverence, them digging into reverence, them giving a definition to reverence, him giving an example, worldly example of how he had reverence, giving an example of what irreverence looks like, walking us a very brief walk through uh, the book, bringing us back to the beginning and saying, hey, this is this is what they did. This is what we did. These are the same things. And we, we are not treating God with reverence. And the reason we don't do that and haven't been doing that is because we are a part of a system that was built to not do that. And so he's really unpacking the whole thing saying like, like if you're like the people in Malachi where you're like, how are we not doing that? He's like, it's because because we, we as the pastors didn't do a, a good job of explaining what you were supposed to be doing because we were part of a system that was all about making it, you think this was about you and using all means necessary short of sin to get you in these seats. And that was wrong. And you don't hear this a lot from people that, and I don't know anything about Jordan outside of the sermon, but my guess is that he grew up in a secret sensitive system developed and copied those sort of traits and has now seen the side effects of that and the the the, the not so great side of the secret sensitive movement and he says I can't do that anymore because it's it's not helping you and you you do not hear that from a lot of people that's the vast majority of and I have to tell you, I wish that I could tell you that I, I did this right, but man, I got saved when I was 16, 17, I started preaching. When I came, when they asked me to come pastor the church, I didn't know what I was doing. I knew one thing. I knew that I needed to preach every word of this book. I've never faltered there. And I'm confidently can tell you that. But as for everything else, I'm like, what am I, what are we supposed to do? And we don't even have where to go. I didn't know you weren't supposed to have a church in a shopping center. I didn't know that everybody else would hate that. I didn't know that. When are you gonna get a steeple on the building? What? And so we started, early on we started looking, how do we, how do we, what do we do? What are the things that we do? And so we started borrowing things from other churches and they're doing this and they're doing this and they're doing this and, and the heart was there. But then I realized in so many ways, we've built a church that's for you and not for God. And we've conditioned you, it's, it's, it's okay, it's all right. You can be 20 minutes late every single Sunday for the rest of your life. It's just God, what does he matter? You never be late for your boss. But we've let it happen because it's not about God, it's about us and it's about what you want. It's about you being comfortable. It's about you getting something. And over the years, we've had hundreds and hundreds of people come to the church and we've had a bunch of people leave for the dumbest reasons. There's no steeple, that's a real one, that's not a joke. You don't have Sunday school. Where the, the small groups aren't good enough. You know, I live 16 minutes away and, and 15 minutes is my minimum. 
It's too early. Service is too early. It's too late. I don't like the worship. The music's too loud. They have guitars. It's not loud enough. It's not rockish enough. You don't sing modern songs. You sing hymns. I don't like the seats. I don't like the pews. It's too dark in there. That's one. Somebody roasted us on Google. One star. Didn't even stay for the message. It was too dark in there. Think about the reasons you've thought about leaving. Think about the reasons why you left where you came from. He's too loud. He's too quiet. He's not passionate enough. In two weeks, as God is my witness, somebody wrote me an email. You don't dress right. You need to dress better. You need to wear at least a collared shirt. I wore a collared shirt. The next week, as God is my witness, somebody's been coming for two years, you're changing. You're people pleasing. That's not you. I realized something a long time ago. If I was doing this to please you, I'd kill myself. Now, there's people laughing, but that is a serious thing. Like, so when people talk about like, like that's not a joke to him when he says that. And if you think it is, you don't know enough pastors to know that like, not only are you getting <laughs> criticized on every, every side, but most of the time, those are people you're getting criticized from the very people that are coming to your church. And so like that, that is real. Like the idea that you need to pray for your pastor and encourage your pastor uh, again, of course, hold them accountable to scripture make sure they're preaching it right and make sure they're on it. I mean, there's a whole like, right, but you do it in a, in a gentle way. Um, unless they're just like, again, even if they're way off the deep end, you at least confirm that they're way off the deep end before you assume they are. And so, um, that's why the whole sermon review guide that we have is made the way it is. So you can take detailed notes and be like, Hey, I just need to clarify, like, what were you saying here? What were you doing here? Like, I'm just curious. And so like praying for your pastor is so important. I, I can't, I can't emphasize enough. I think his statement there should let you know how serious it is that if he was here just for people, just forget it. It's not worth it. This whole thing is nonsensical. People are so dumb sometimes and it's not worth it to do it for them, but it is worth it to do it for God. And so I just want to press that point into you. Is that like, like hold, obviously hold your pastor to account as far as the scriptures and how they're being taught, but do it in a gentle way, right? In a loving way. That's like, I just like, I really need clarification here if he's way off and encourage him when he's way on. Again, one of the reasons I wanted to do this this sermon so bad is I listened to it. And I'm like, this is so good. Like, I'm so sick of just all of these terrible sermons um, that don't stick to the scripture, that like, it's just all over the place, that twist it sometimes in such damaging ways. This is refreshing. So like, when you hear your pastor do a good job, like, encourage him, text him, call him, let him know, send him an email. Uh, it means a lot. And that's the truth. But for far too long, if I'm just honest with you, this is the part where I just have to repent of my own sins. For so many years, a pastor in this church is, as much as I wish it wasn't the truth, my goal was for the church to grow. 
this was what the real I, I took from um, his church's actually his church's Instagram account. This was part of this was that real that was so inspiring. I was like, I got to hear the rest of the sermon. My primary goal wasn't for God to be worshipped. And because my primary goal was for the church to grow. There's so many things that were put in place in order for that to happen. And it is a great sin against our God. I, I don't mean to break in a whole bunch here at the end, but the, the accountability that he's taking, um, you can feel like you, obviously it's, it's hit him. It's, it's been hitting him. He, 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 it has deeply profoundly hit him. <laughs> and so this transparency is so rare. Um, so many churches aren't healthy that pastors would never do this, um, or never feel comfortable doing this. And so this is something that's just so inspiring and so rare and so raw and so real. Um, but it's coming from a place where he realizes that he had, he, he had been doing this incorrectly. And now he is, not only does he recognize it, he's going to say here in a minute, they're going to change what they do. Um, to fit in with this understanding of reverence. See, when we gather together, it's not about you. And it's not about what you want. It's not about you being comfortable. It's not even about the type of music. It's not, it's not about that. It is about the God of the universe. It's about the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's about him being worshiped. And when I preach, it's not about me showing off gifts. It's not about you giving you a little nugget to get through the week. What's really happening is that this is the voice of God, that that's how this should be seen. It's the voice of God. When we get up and run around and walk around and be on our phones and get out and use the bathroom 15 times and come back in, this service doesn't do that, but the second service is like a popcorn. I'm gonna yell at them. <laughs> My heart of what I want you to hear this morning is, is it is so much more than I've made it. And I'm so, so sorry. And like the people in Malachi over and over and over again, God said something and, and they were like, but how are we doing that? They genuinely didn't know. And over the last six weeks, I found myself in that place. <laughs> I was trying to do it the right way. But when you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you'll never do it the right way. And so the last few days, especially, I've just, I've been in such a bad place. Just weeping. I'm 36 years old. And the Lord has called me to be a shepherd. And at the end of this, I will stand before him, not you. We will all stand before him. And I need you to understand something. The vast majority of our current cultural Christianity is not Christianity at all. 
it would be easy to slam other churches and other groups, but they are God's. We have to start in our heart and in our minds. And so one of the things the Lord has called us to do. And so he's going to get to it. But again, I, I just really want to press in on the. the th- you, you don't often see this. And I think this is where like. And I guess we just speak specifically to pastors. Um is that if you have a pastor like this, I'm lucky enough to have a pastor very similar to this that is open and honest and, and says like, I, I, do, I have to stand before God, not you one day. And as such, I've got to do the thing that I know he wants me to do. And if you don't like it, that's, that is what it is. And not only is he recognizing that, He's sorrowful over the fact that he has led them in a way that's not correct. And that you can tell that grieves him. And I think one of the things we all have to ask is just as pastors from all various backgrounds. And like, again, you may not have a background similar to Jordan's. You may have a different, but like everybody comes from a different denomination. The question being like, when's the last time, just speaking to pastors, when's the last time that you really... Got before God, and just and said and just wept and said, "God, like I, I want to lead well. Help me do that." And if there's somewhere that I am not doing that well, reveal that, so I can change that. When's the last time, as a as somebody that attends a church, because that's the majority of you, right, that you have gone to the Lord in prayer, like serious prayer, and prayed for your pastor? Not just Lord, give him a good message, but like prayed for his 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 family's well being, his mental health, his ability to lead well and shepherd as he should. Like, when's the last time you did that? Because I think the result of that is what we're seeing here. We're gonna talk more about it later, and we're not gonna start anything until August, September. But we are going to, and it may be difficult, and we may lose people. But we are no longer going to build a system for the church to grow. We're going to build a system for reverence for God. Because if we don't have reverence for God, we don't have anything. And I want to end with this. This is going to be the foundational thought because it's not just a thought and it's not just a gimmick. It is real. It is more real than I think we understand. We're going to build and base things on one reality that when we gather together, whether that's on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or Saturdays or whatever it is, when we gather together, we're going to build things like there is a throne on this stage and Jesus is sitting in it. And that's how we're going to treat worship. That's how we're going to treat our time together. That's how we're going to structure things. And when I stand up here and preach, 
we are gonna act like this is God's living word because it is. We're gonna treat it like it's the voice of God because it is. We are gonna be a house of reverence before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because if we don't treat our God holy, no one will. And he is great. He is mighty. He is holy. He created us. He saved us from our sins. He's had mercy on us. He's put his spirit in us. We, he's made us sons and daughters. We owe him everything. Everything. And so for me in this house, we're not just gonna serve the Lord. We're gonna serve the Lord according to his will and his ways. And I would beg of you, come on that journey with me. Because I think that the Lord is doing a great and mighty thing and I wanna be a part of what he's doing. Amen? Amen. If you guys will stand. Okay, so he's gonna get into uh, prayer. And so that is the sermon. And so there's not a lot to be said. Now, you probably saw me looking at my phone a whole bunch. I have a lot of notes that I want to go over. I know we're already pretty far into it, but bear with me here because I think they will be beneficial. And so the first thing we have to ask are the three questions we always ask. Uh, did he read the scripture? He did. Did he use context and culture to exegete the scripture be an application? 100%. I talked about how he brought the two together a number of different times really well and very seamlessly. Did he preach the gospel of Christ? Uh, he, he interjected it a number of different times, though more blatantly toward the beginning when he was talking about Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. He loves you very much. All of like that section. Again, didn't unpack it as far as the he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, that whole thing that we talk about a lot. But he presented it uh, to them within uh, as he was sort of breaking down what's God saying in the Old Testament, how would that translate to the New, and sort of tied it in in that section. So I think he hit everything... Um, uh, everything that we look for in, in the sermon. The other notes, though, here, I think, are really helpful. The first one being is that he built the sermon in such a way that he brought you along, uh, more specifically brought his congregation along on the journey that him and presumably the other the other uh, leaders of the church have been on for a minute, uh, was really transparent about it, really gave them the history of sort of why they're at where they're at now, broke that down, apologized for that, and decided to move on. Um, that's the general gist. And so that right there really is the definition of repentance, right? This idea of I recognize that I was doing this wrong. I'm turning from the way I'm doing I have done this. I am apologizing for it, and we're going to go a different direction. And doing so because of understanding the reverence of God and that our God deserves a certain type of uh, worship from us. Um, and doing that. And again, I don't think maybe he's, he's probably never heard of the regulative principle uh, of worship, but that seems to be the direction of him recognizing that there's a, there's a certain way that God has outlined to be worshiped, uh, and we should do it that way. And so uh, altogether, I think that was a really, really good, really transparent, really purposeful for his specific church sermon. And I think it's a really good example for pastors on a number of fronts, how to build a sermon, how to be transparent in front of your congregation, um, and how to apologize um, for leading them in a direction that um, you thought was right at the time, and you come to find out that it wasn't later. And so altogether, I think this was great. I'd be really interested to know what you think, uh, because we don't run across these sermons often. 
Um, so let me know down below. If you liked it, make sure you like it. Uh, if you thought it was really helpful, make sure you share it. And if you're not subscribed, do that so you can catch these every single week. I'll talk to you later. See ya.